Good morning. It's my privilege to be able to worship with you on this Easter Sunday morning where you and I have the tremendous privilege together now to look at a very fascinating section of the scriptures that deals with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What makes this chapter so fascinating is that in the order in which the New Testament was written, this is the first written account in your New Testament with regard to the resurrection. Because 1 Corinthians was written in the A.D. 50 period, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written in the A.D. 60s, and the Gospel of John subsequent to. So this is your first written account in the Newer Testament with regard to the resurrection. So we want to understand then why Paul would refer to this account as of first importance, which is going to be the theme this morning as you and I reason together from this passage and apply it not only to our lives, but also share it with those who have a definite need to be able to understand what is truly of first importance in this world. So I invite you to join with me in turning to 1 Corinthians 15, or else if you're using the worship folder to follow along with me with what is found within that folder where this text has been printed for us. Because now, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens these thoughts for you and for me in a way which I think is incredibly relevant to the modern situation of this world. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So I I want you to join with me as we we are preparing our hearts now to reason together biblically 
and attempt to once again take that which is timeless and apply it in the timely way it requires. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. There is a sense where every day is resurrection day. But every day we have this sense of the risen Savior's involvement in our lives. You did not abandon him in that grave. He did not abandon us with that grave. The grave is empty. He is risen. It has direct bearing. It certifies his finished work on the cross. It clarifies the way in which we are to live for you. Most of all, it magnifies the way in which Jesus Christ is to be viewed as Savior and as Lord of our lives. And Father, in these moments, as we reflect and we reason together from your word which you've inspired We're asking now in a very profound way on this Easter Sunday morning that again you would warm our hearts. You would engage these minds. That you would shape these wills. Because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. So my friends in Germany, German pastors, love on occasion to tell the story of a time period during the Ottoman Empire when there was a teenager who loved Jesus Christ as his Lord and as his Savior. But he was taken captive during the days of the Ottomans. And so he became, he became, he was held hostage to a fanatical follower of Muhammad. He never relinquished his faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, though, even though he lived in isolation from all other believers. One person writes, One Easter morning, he had to plow his Muslim master's field but nonetheless, as he followed the plow, he, he kept the Easter celebration at the center of his personal experience, rejoicing in that risen one. For as he walked in the furrow behind the plow, he sang in his mother tongue one of Luther's Easter hymns, quote, Jesus Christ today is risen in all death, triumphant reign, leading sin herself in chains. In God's sovereign timing, we're told that at the moment in which he was singing, a representative from the German government who was stationed in Constantinople just happened to be riding by. Amazed to hear an Easter song being sung in the German language in that region of the world, 
he got off of what was then his carriage and approached the singer. And this young man told his story of how he had been taken captive and yet at the same time spoke of his freedom in Jesus Christ. And then said, I don't think I'll ever be able to return to my fatherland, but I shall always preserve my Christian faith. The officer of the German government succeeded in obtaining this young man's freedom. Whereupon he went back to Germany and shared the story of how he had been freed from captivity and used the political analogy to be able to lead people to the spiritual reality of the ultimate release from captivity where his Savior, who had died for his sins was raised on that third day and verified, clarified, magnified the work on that cross. What I want to do with you this morning as we are riveting our attention now upon what Paul describes as what matters most of first things is to draw out from this first account in the chronological order in which the New Testament is written, that which is of first importance, three significant observations that I think bear directly upon the way in which we take changeless truths and apply them to these changing times. The first is found in verse 1 and 2, and we're going to phrase it like this. Number one, In light of Christ's resurrection, note with me the personal faith that we need to establish. Look for the verbs here in these opening verses and draw yourself into Paul's account. Where now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now mark words like received at the end of verse 1, stand at the end of verse 1, being saved in the heart of verse 2. Now notice that he tells us that he wants to remind us which means then that this is something that has already been taught. And likewise, in this tremendous church that God has gifted us with at Ephrehia, in all these services, what we have to bear in mind is that there is a sense where this is now a reminder of the gospel presentation, which has previously and continuously been taught. And what is the gospel? The gospel is God's redemptive work through Jesus Christ on our behalf. It is not our redemptive work to obtain God's favor. It is God's redemptive work through Jesus Christ on our behalf. What then is to be my response? What is to be your response to this gospel? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. 
notice the phrasing here, which you received. This describes a positive response. This describes a past response. So now what you and I do is we take spiritual inventory. We hit the pause button and we ask ourselves the critical of first importance type of question. Have I, in time past, received this good news of the fact that God in his redemptive work provided my means of salvation through Jesus Christ on my behalf? Have I received this? Or have I not? That is the question that you and I in an Easter Sunday morning like this have got to be able to ask to get beyond the celebration and become in some ways also incredibly introspective with regard to the way in which I've responded to what God has already secured through Jesus Christ which you received is past tense, in which you stand. Do you see the logical flow here from past to present? That which you have received, that which in which you stand. In other words, now, on the basis of what I have received, it is upon this basis in which I stand. The Greek word here, your New Testament is written in Greek, carries with it the idea of an individual who is, who is in essence, planting his feet or her feet firmly in the midst of a storm. Where the winds are howling, and life seems to be producing some kind of incredible pressure against that individual. Now, I don't know what pressures you're facing this morning. For some, these are health-related matters. For some, these are intense family-related dynamics. Some are carrying a heavy weight of financial confusion and concern. But ultimately, you and I are called upon to embrace that which is of first importance and ask, what is it that is of first importance in my own heart? Have I received this? And on the basis of what I have received, it is upon that basis in which I now take my stand, no matter what the winds of life may send my way. Michael Faraday was a tremendous scientist. And he loved Jesus as his Lord and Savior. When he was dying, his testimony was still on his lips. And some newspaper journalists approached him and asked questions. And the questions basically came about in terms of his speculations for life after death. Speculations, he said. I know nothing about speculations. I am resting on certainties. I have taken my stand that I know my Redeemer liveth 
and because he lives, I shall live also. Quote, unquote. Now, is that where you're at? What are the winds that are now confronting you? What is it that so overwhelms you? If you have not established this as of first importance, you're going to get knocked down by the winds of life. But if you've established this in what you have received, therefore in which you now stand, You stake yourself firmly to the risen Savior. And now you have the stability and the the certainty in the midst of the slippery slope syndrome of life to be able to face whatever winds are coming your way. Are you able to do that this morning? Have you established that which is of first importance? that the sovereign God in his redemptive activity through the work of Jesus Christ died for our sins. It was done on our behalf. He goes on to say, and by which you are being saved, speaking of that process leading to that ultimate state of glorification when the body is made whole. Some of our loved ones in this tremendous fellowship of believers of this congregation, the bodies are breaking down. And we've been visiting people in and out of hospitals and in and out of homes over the course of these days. And what we are looking for is that final completion, so to speak, of this entire redemptive process where we are secured in our salvation. And now we're ultimately concerned for what's ahead in that future glorification. And that's what's being described here now. That in the light of Christ's resurrection, note the personal faith we need to establish that in which you have received, in which you now take your stand, through which you are being saved, saved with all certainty in time past, saved with utmost certainty of what's still to come in the future when God glorifies that body. This piece came from NPR, National Public Radio's website, Morning Edition. That in 1958, America's first commercial jet air service began with the flight of Boeing 707. And a month after that first flight, there was this traveler on a piston engine, propelled driven DC 6 airliner, who struck up a conversation with a fellow passenger. And the passenger just happened to be a Boeing engineer who worked upon this flight, the 707. And so the traveler asked the engineer about the new jet aircraft. The engineer spoke at length about the extensive testing Boeing had done on that engine before bringing it into commercial service. And when all the questions were just about complete, there was one more traveling companion asked him if he himself had yet flown on the new 707. And the engineer replied, quote, I think I'll wait until it's been in service a while, unquote. Faith which can't be tested. 
can't be trusted. This kind of faith can be tested by the empty tomb. Christianity is not based upon your faith. Christianity is based upon Christ's finished work. And the resurrection verifies the crucifixion and the tetelestai moment when Christ cried out, it is finished, you see. Is your faith being tested today? What kind of winds are howling in your face right now where you find yourself buckling? Have you staked your claim to that which is of first importance? If you can say yes, we're ready then for the second significant observation flowing out of these verses. That number two, that in light of Christ's resurrection, I want you to note with me the critical events we now need to connect there are going to be three of them that begin to unfold naturally in front of our very eyes. Because as Paul has wisely presented up front and personal the fact that the gospel has been presented, the redemptive ministry actuated by God through Jesus Christ on our behalf, and we have been called to receive it, to take our stand in it, Now we look very carefully, not at the critical moments of our lives, not on our faith journey, but rather we go into Christ's work. Consider the ultimate faith journey. And there are three pivotal points on this timeline that Paul draws out that we have got to be able to connect together. The first... Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He is informing you and me that this is of first importance. What I also received, he's saying, I've embraced it. Question, have you? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, notice that it says Christ died. Not Christ dies. It says Christ died. It does not say Christ will die. There is a definitive past tense embrace of what is described here now. Look at this as if you have never allowed your eyes to canvas this verse before. Take it word by word. Christ died for. It doesn't simply say Christ died, period. Had he? We would have been left in our sins and left to pay the penalty for our sins. But brilliantly, through the working of the Holy Spirit, God has inspired Paul to phrase it like this. Christ died for our sins. The for is critical. It means that Christ's death was purposeful. Furthermore, 
therefore is important because it means that Christ's death was substitutionary. Substitutionary. The whole essence of this world is the essence of substitution. The essence of sin is when we substitute ourselves for God. The essence of salvation, that God substitutes himself for us. The little word F-O-R makes all the difference in the world as to that which is of first importance. What's of first importance to you this morning? As the wind is howling in your face. The wind was howling in Chuck Colson's face. He was facing an imprisonment moment. He had previously and recently come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And God used this critical moment, in fact, to lead him to that cross. And there were fellow believers who were burdened for him to see him through these days. He writes in his book, Born Again, on page 338, that the brothers at Fellowship House rallied now to my aid as a fellow new believer. On Tuesday, January 28th, Al Quay called. Al Quay from Minnesota, House of Representatives at that point in time. Chuck, I've been thinking about what else we can do to help you. All of us today signed a letter to the president appealing for mercy. But is there anything else? The voice on the other end did not sound like Al. The words came slowly and seemed laden with sadness. Al, you guys are doing everything possible, I told him, and I love you for it. I just don't know what else you can do. There's got to be something else, Chuck. I've been thinking. There was a long pause. There's an old statute someone told me about. I'm going to ask the president if I can serve the rest of your term for you. F-O-R-U. Stunned. I could only stammer a protest. Alqui, with 20 years in Congress, sixth-ranking Republican in the House, senior minority member of the Education Labor Committee, one of the most respected public figures in Washington. He couldn't be serious. I mean it, Chuck, he said. I haven't come to this decision lightly. I won't let you, I said. Your family needs you, Chuck, and I can't sleep while you're in prison. I think I'd be a lot happier on the inside with you on the out. What a powerful statement. I haven't come to this decision lightly. In eternity past, 
the second member of the Trinity, established himself in a covenantal relationship that he would die for F-O-R, our sins. He had not come to this decision lightly. If the wind now is blowing against your face, and you find yourself buckling under the pressures of life, Hit the pause button and ask yourself again, what in my own personal life is of first importance? Because that which I have received is that in which I take my stand. The personal faith we need to establish ties us to the crucial events we need to connect Christ died for our sins. But notice the phrasing, according to the Scriptures. (coughs) Which means, then, that this was not an accident in time. This was an appointment with time. Because eight centuries prior, in Isaiah chapter 53, God inspired Isaiah to speak of the one who would die for you and Die for me. The critical word, again, in our, in our Christian vocabulary, F-O-R. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Which means, then, that this had been purposefully established in eternity past. I am not embracing an accident I am putting my faith and trust in the sovereign appointment that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. But a second significant event, Christ was buried. Now, the average set of eyes typically overlooks that point, shoots directly ahead, toward that empty tomb moment. Yet what we've got to bear in mind is that God allowed the Roman process to unfold naturally so that death could be legally certified. Pilate had it so that when the soldiers would come to Jesus' body on their cross, they would have to verify that the body was in fact dead. In John's account in chapter 19, verse 33, he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But so concerned with his opponents, so concerned were they that Jesus Christ would be still viewed as alive. That in Matthew's account in the 27th chapter, Beginning in verse 61, down through verse 66, Matthew informs us that on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, religious unbelievers, secular unbelievers converge. And they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After Three days I will rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. 
lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. And then the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a God. In other words, they've got vested interest in keeping that body in that grave. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure along with the God. They set a seal on the stone. And I look at that, don't you? And I process that, don't you? And I begin to think about the significance of what is being described here. Some thoughts worth considering. The disciples were willing to die for their claim that they had seen Jesus after their death. Though they had been mocked by timidity prior to. How do you describe such a transformation? Would they be willing to take a stand for a lie? when prior to, they were so fearful? There are going to be more than 500 people described in these verses who could attest to seeing the risen Lord. The religious and governmental institutions had a vested interest in stopping the rapid spread of the Christian faith. The witnesses were credible, but most significant of all, the Romans wanted to be able to make certain that this one who was a threat to Caesar, in their estimation, was still in that grave. The religious opponents wanted to make absolutely certain that this one they considered to be a blasphemer was still in that grave, either of which would have wanted to produce a body when they heard out on the streets that he is risen, yet they could not refute that line of proclamation. Astounding. Because this naturally leads you then to the third significant event and you are connecting the dots because there in verse 4, you and I are informed that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And you and I are informed that what God has done and in particular what Jesus Christ is taught, was to continuously connect Christ's death with Christ's resurrection. Three significant statements were uttered by Jesus as he made his slow but sure movements towards Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 8, you and I are told that the Son of Man said that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again, only to be repeated a second time in Mark 9, in verse 31, and then to be reemphasized in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, threefold emphasis of a three-day period leading to resurrection, you see. Now what is happening here is that the dots are being connected. And we realize that we have got a death-resurrection connection unfolding in front of our very eyes. And I thought about that when I, this week, was looking again day by day at the events in the Middle East. And there's a woman in Jerusalem who writes this for USA Today. 
that the 20th century saw 850,000 Jews expelled from Arab lands between 1948 and 70. Today, fewer than 5,000 Jews remain in those Muslim countries where Christians now face the same violence, pogroms, murders that drove out the Jews. As the modern-day jihadi saying goes, quote, First the Saturday people, then the Sunday people. Quote, unquote. This week, now many miles to the north of Jerusalem, Hezbollah's spiritual leader, Sheikh Hassan Nasrallah, summed up his malignant worldview. Quote, We have discovered how to hit the Jews where they are the most vulnerable. The Jews love life, so that is what we shall take away from them. We are going to win because they love life and we love death. And yet what we find, even as people had gathered together in this setting on Thursday night to celebrate the Seder, where a substitution idea, F-O-R, was brought to the mindset of the celebrants, of the Passover idea, where a lamb stood as the, stood as the substitute for those within that household who would allow for the lamb's blood to be applied to that doorpost of that house. Is that toward the end of Passover week, is a day known as first fruits. And what you and I find is that what Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, is that, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, there is more resurrection to come. And that's why Paul wrote of the fact that you are being saved because we are anticipating the ultimate resurrection, you see. Or a Johnny Erickson will have a glorified body. And one accord, God's people will realize that this is first fruit celebration. And Passover this week was on a Tuesday. Guess which day is first fruits? Sunday. Resurrection day which leads us to this third significant observation. That when you and I take all of this into account, we also accept the fact that in light of Christ's resurrection, note the physical appearances we need to consider. All the evidences. All the evidences. He appeared to Cephas, the one who denied him. Cephas had a history, and yet Jesus died for one who had a history. You and I have a history. And some of us wish we could hit the erase, the delete. Instead, Jesus Christ dies for F-O-R us, and we're set free, like Cephas. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, so that this is no mere conspiracy strategy, where various people could be interviewed. He appeared to James, uh, a brother of Jesus Christ, half-brother, who, according to John chapter 7, was part of a clan that initially did not believe, but in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, is numbered among those who in that upper room were followers of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, we're informed, last of all, is one untimely born. In other words, the Damascus Road encounter. He appeared also to me, Paul wrote, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now he's setting up the ultimate example of grace. That if you could take a persecutor and allow the risen Savior to break into his movements on a road and save him, he can save you and me. But by the grace of God... He doesn't say, I am what I was. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Powerful wording that takes us to the one who claimed to be the great I am. I don't think I'll ever be able to return, he said. But yet I shall take my stand and preserve my Christian faith. For I know my Savior lives. And the government official succeeded in obtaining the young man's freedom. He went back home to talk about the freedom he has in Jesus. Do you have that freedom today? As the worship team comes forward, let's look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, we praise you and we thank you that in the very first account in our New Testament of the resurrection truth, that you would take an Apostle Paul, who was an utter opponent at one point, though religious, and so transform his life that you could say to all of us who have a history, it's all about grace. It's all about Jesus. And the empty tomb is there to remind us so. We receive it. We take our stand in it. We are saved by it. We give you the praise in Jesus' name.